Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio. And how the tech are ya? It is time for the tech news for November 22nd, 2022, the Tuesday before American Thanksgiving. So uh, the rest of this week is going to be reruns, and then we'll be back next week with all new episodes. But let's get to the news today. And you know the drill. We need to get the Twitter stuff out of the way first, because obviously a ton has happened since our last news episode on Thursday of last week. So last Thursday, Elon Musk's ultimatum hit. Employees had to sign a form indicating whether they would stick it out and work longer, harder hours to build what Musk calls Twitter 2.0, which we'll talk about a bit in a second, or if they would take a severance package and just walk. And reportedly, A lot of folks, maybe as many as a thousand, took that package. It's hard to get a real number because I feel some of the reporting has been fueled by schadenfreude. And also, Twitter no longer has a public relations office. Elon Musk got rid of that early on in the layoffs. So there's no one to ask to get official feedback on this stuff. 
There were stories about entire departments within Twitter essentially being emptied, including departments like payroll, which obviously would create a real hassle at the company. One story that proved to at least have some substance was that the folks in charge of monitoring badge access to Twitter HQ had left, and since Musk had directed Twitter HQ to essentially go on lockdown for this week, the idea being they want to keep the area safe from disgruntled former employees while things settle down, uh, it also meant that no one, not even Musk, could regain access to the building because all the people who maintained that had left. So Musk actually had to call up a now former employee to come in and open the building up again, which is pretty wild. Anyway, tons of people popped on Twitter throughout the weekend, waiting to see if it might crash and not come back up. You know, kind of like I was there when Twitter went away. But for now, the site is still active. Uh, I imagine the people left at Twitter are really working super hard to make sure that stays the case. Meanwhile, Musk has also sent a memo in Twitter indicating that many employee perks are now gonzo, as in they are no more, at least for the time being. And that includes stuff like company allowances for home internet, uh, employee wellness programs, uh, training and development programs, daycare, and quarterly team activities, among other things. So for the folks who are left behind, there are fewer and fewer benefits that they can take advantage of while they work longer and longer hours. Of course, for some employees, working for Twitter is absolutely critical. Some are here in the U.S. on work visas, and if their employment ends, they have to leave the country. Some are dependent upon health care for ongoing treatments. So even if you never use Twitter, or you've never liked Twitter, or maybe you hate Twitter now, whatever it might be, please send out good vibes for the people who are in tough situations that are just continuing to get tougher. I mean, for all the people who resigned, who were laid off, and for the people who are still at Twitter, it is a tough time to be in that situation, especially right as the holidays are picking up. But wait, there's more. After all that drama late last week, this week opened with even more drama. Musk announced that he was holding even more layoffs, this time specifically targeting Twitter's sales teams. Uh, last week, the company saw the head of ad sales and the VP of partnerships both get their walking papers. Reportedly, these leaders were fired because they refused directives to lay off more of their employees. They were trying to protect the people who are working in their departments, and they've been canned as a result. So Musk decided that if these folks are not going to follow his orders, they gots to go. And then the head of U.S. content partnerships left the company. From what I can tell, she made that choice on her own. So it's possible that she saw what was going on in other departments and said, I can't be a part of this. Or maybe she had other reasons. I don't know. But she left the company as well. So the senior leadership at Twitter continues to dwindle. When Musk assumed control of Twitter, the company had 7,500 employees, 7,500 people. Now The Verge reports that the headcount is down to around 2,700, and Business Insider is even more pessimistic. They say it's actually 2,300 employees. Yesterday, after the sales team layoffs, Musk held an all-hands meeting where he announced that he'd be hiring again, specifically that he was looking to hire people in engineering and Hang on a second. It says here sales. You know, the department where he had just laid people off. Well, details are somewhat scarce because, you know, again, no public relations department within the company, so you can't really reach out to get comment. 
But outlets are saying that Musk himself was fairly vague about what these people would be doing. So yeah, he needs engineers and he needs needs salespeople, but he didn't specify what roles he was looking to fill. Um, And at least as of yesterday, there were no job openings listed on Twitter's corporate site. But Musk said, quote, in terms of critical hires, I would say people who are great at writing software are the highest priority, end quote. And one recent hire, well, an intern, is George Hotz, H-O-T-Z. If you're not familiar with Hotz's name, he's a hacker. And he made his name doing things like jailbreaking iOS devices. Uh, He figured out how the PlayStation 3 works. He reverse engineered it. Uh, Infamously, he had a real kind of tiff with Elon Musk. Uh, Musk apparently wanted Hotz to come over and work for Tesla because Hotz was looking to replicate Tesla's autopilot system, but make it like a kit that you could just get and install into other machines, like other cars. And so Musk reportedly wanted to offer Hotz a job, but Hotz says that while they were sitting down to work out terms, they couldn't come to an agreement, and eventually Hotz split, and he got irritated at Musk. But now Hotz has agreed to spend 12 weeks working at Twitter, and he says it's his main focus is to work on search functions for Twitter itself. So what do you do after you lay off half of your company, your newly purchased company, you then convince another 1,000 or so folks to resign, you require engineers to come in on a weekend to cram on code and keep things afloat, and then you call an all-hands meeting to talk about hiring again. Well, you also unveil your plan for the next incarnation of your company. Musk's Twitter 2.0 is going to have voice calls and video chat and encryption for direct messages, according to Elon himself. And it's sounding like Musk is merging his vision of Twitter with his desire to build an everything app that he had previously referred to as X. You may not know this, but when uh, Musk was first founding, uh, I believe it was PayPal, co-founding PayPal, he wanted to call it X, and um, ended up not calling it that because they thought that it probably wouldn't be a, v- a viable business name. But uh, now he wants to make an app, everything app called X that would be similar to China's WeChat app. And WeChat incorporates tons of stuff like communication, social networking, commerce features, all these sort of things. Elon Musk kind of wants to make a similar app to that, but for markets outside of China, obviously. Whether he can do that with a team that has been so heavily affected by layoffs and resignations remains to be seen. Reportedly, a lot of the folks who have left Twitter were ones who were senior members of their respective teams, which could represent a huge loss of knowledge. Like, that alone is going to set people back. When you've got people who were sort of the the depositories of knowledge within the company and they leave, uh, I mean, if the documentation is there, then you can you can muscle your way through it, but it takes time. But if the documentation isn't there, then it gets increasingly difficult. Elon Musk himself has said that several of Twitter's departments are going to need to be rebuilt from scratch, which seems to me to be a monumental undertaking in of itself that fewer people are going to be around to actually tackle. So it definitely sounds like it's going to be a tough time ahead. Um, And in the meantime, we don't know if any of this is realistic even from inside Twitter, because again, there's no PR department there. Well, that's it for the Twitter news. We'll move on 
to some other things after we come back from this quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Okay, we're back. So last spring, the National Labor Relations Board, or NLRB here in the United States, brought a lawsuit against Amazon saying that the company had engaged in retaliatory actions against employees who are workplace activists. Namely, that Amazon fired former employee Gerald Bryson 
after Bryson worked to organize employees at a warehouse on Staten Island that went on to actually vote to unionize. Now a judge has partly ruled in favor of the NLRB's argument. They have said that Amazon did engage in such behaviors and that Amazon needs to knock that crap off in the future. However, the judge did not go so far as to agree with the NLRB that Amazon's actions impacted employees' efforts to unionize and that the company should reinstate Bryson. So the NLRB said Bryson's firing was intended to scare other employees away from organizing because firing Bryson showed that other employees would receive no protection during the actual organization process. That yes, once you are unionized, you have an organization that can protect you from the company. But until that happens, you are incredibly vulnerable. But the judge determined that employees continue to organize even in the wake of Bryson's firing and so did not agree to the request to have Bryson reinstated as an Amazon employee. So Amazon does have a cease and desist order against it regarding interfering in employee organization efforts, but the company will not have to hire Bryson back on the team. As I mentioned last week, Amazon is holding layoffs that are expected to hit around 10,000 employees before they're all done. And the hardware divisions have been affected a lot by this. And Business Insider reports that the Amazon Alexa division is in real jeopardy right now. My apologies for any of you who have Amazon devices in earshot, but we are going to have to say that name a couple times. The project began as a Jeff Bezos-backed idea. That is, Alexa was like Jeff Bezos's baby for a little while. But after a few years of failing to find any way to drive revenue via Alexa, the shine on the product has really worn off for the company. Of course, Bezos is no longer head honcho at Amazon. You've got Andy Jassy there as CEO now, and he tends to take a more pragmatic view of the business. And according to various reports, a big part of the problem is that while Amazon's Echo devices are really popular, they sell really well, the company is selling them at cost with the goal of making money off of the use of the devices rather than through the sale of devices themselves. So this is similar to how companies that make game consoles will sell those consoles close to the cost of production. So while a game console might be hundreds of dollars, it typically isn't making the company a lot of profit or any profit with each sale. Sometimes companies even take a loss on it because their idea is that they'll make their money by selling you games and services that leverage the console. The console is the entry point to making revenue. Well, that's how Amazon was looking at the Echo line of products. But the problem is the team never quite figured out a way to monetize Alexa's use. And so the division accrued more and more financial losses over time. And according to Ars Technica, that division is headed toward a $10 billion loss this year. Billion with a B. Holy cow. And just to be clear, this problem is not unique to Amazon. Now, Apple and Google each have found it difficult to monetize their digital voice assistant products. People have been using them, but there hasn't really been a way to tap into that use and generate revenue. And that could mean that the days of us talking to our electronics like we're aboard the Starship Enterprise and we're chatting with the ship's computer could be living on borrowed time. Across the pond in the United Kingdom, regulators are taking a closer look at the mobile operating system landscape. 
So the concern is that Google's Android and Apple's iOS represent a duopoly, you know, two companies that control pretty much the entire mobile operating system landscape. And I don't think you can really argue that. I think that's pretty much effectively the case. I mean, there's not really that many operating systems in the laptop desktop universe either. You've got a few, but the two dominant ones, really the dominant one is Windows, and then you've got Mac OS. There are others as well. There are Linux systems, there are Unix systems, but those represent such a, a small percentage of at least a particular slice of computer. Like if we're talking about web servers, it's a totally different thing. But anyway, this duopoly may have a negative impact on app developers, specifically the Competition and Markets Authority in the UK, or the CMA, is looking into issues that impact mobile gaming. So one thing they're looking at is cloud gaming, which is where you have servers that run an instance of a game and then stream that instance to an end device like a smartphone. Another is that developers claim Apple and Google have failed to address deficiencies in their respective browsers, which in turn forces developers to create workarounds to try and deal with these shortfalls. So the CMA is going to investigate these developer concerns. They're going to look into this. And then if they decide that the concerns are merited and changes are warranted, they will issue a kind of patch response. Now, there is an entire department within the UK that is intended to deal with just this kind of thing, and it's called the Digital Markets Unit. But the problem is this particular agency lacks any regulatory authority. Like, they, they have no way of creating any uh, implements of change because they don't have any authority yet. So that's that's an agency that's still kind of forming. And until it gets some bite to it, uh, it really it, it really can't do much. So the dirty work is following falling to other departments for the time being. Alphabet, Google's parent company, appears to be bending to pressure brought against it by Sir Christopher Hone, whom you might remember owns some $6 billion worth of stake in the company. And Hone had argued that Google was overstaffed and that employees there are overpaid, which, again, I want to say is really saying something when you're a freaking billionaire, okay? When you're a billionaire and you're saying other people are overpaid, maybe rethink your statements a bit, but enough commentary. The crux of the story is that Alphabet has directed Google managers to identify the low performers in their departments and the bottom 6% or so, which would be around 10,000 employees, will presumably be shown the door. And it's a really tough time to be working for tech companies right now. Amazon, Meta, Twitter, infamously, Alphabet, and many others have been laying off thousands of people right at the start of the holiday season. So if you're listening to this show and you've been affected directly or indirectly by these layoffs, I just want to say I wish you the absolute best. I hope things turn around quickly. And as for the argument that companies like Alphabet and particularly Google have too many employees, part of that can actually be a strategy to scoop up talent so that this talent doesn't end up working for a competitor because it is a cutthroat business out in Silicon Valley, y'all. Just in case my fellow Americans weren't worried enough that Meta slash Facebook is gathering all of their data, let's talk about taxes, shall we? So the markup has published a piece that says tax services like Tax Slayer, Tax Act, and H&R Block have been transmitting financial information 
from web clients that are coming to do their taxes online to Facebook. And that information being sent to Facebook includes some pretty, you know, standard stuff like like person's names and their email addresses and usernames, that kind of stuff. But in some cases, at least, it also includes more privileged information like income filing status, refund amounts, the actual amount of income a person makes, that kind of thing. And you might be saying to yourself, huh, does Meta really know how much I make? Do they need to know that? How much I pay in taxes or whether or not I qualify for a refund? Do I want Meta to use that kind of information as a way to sell more targeted ads to me? I mean, you can easily see why Meta would like that information in the first place because advertisers would love to be able to more accurately target their customers. At the heart of this is the Pixel. This is a product that Facebook offers up for free for companies to use. And installing Pixel into a web page allows several things. Like on the web page side, it allows for a lot of customization of uh, an experience. But on the Facebook side, it means that users who visit these pages that have the pixel on it are sending data to Facebook. Facebook gets more information about user behaviors, like what websites are they visiting? How long are they spending time there? What are they doing in some cases? So in these cases, the activities appear, at least in some instances, to include sensitive financial data. Now, not all tax preparation services have the Pixel installed on sensitive pages, even if they have used the Pixel. So Intuit's TurboTax, which has its own history of issues, does use Pixel, but it only has it at the login page, which means that the Pixel on that page sends information like usernames and how frequently a specific device has logged into the service, but it doesn't include any financial information or anything like that. And the pixel is not included on any pages beyond the login page. So Facebook isn't getting any more information about TurboTax's clients in that case. But for other tax prep preparation services, that's not necessarily the case. And if you don't live in the US and you're wondering why I'm even talking about all this, because most places outside of the US the government handles all this stuff and really it just comes down to the individual citizen to sign off on what the government has found or to, you know, take issue with it and explain, hey, you you missed this thing that should change the amount of taxes I owe. The U.S. does not do that. Uh, the tax preparation sequence is, is highly privatized here in the United States. Taxes are incredibly complex if you do have a good grounding in how taxes are prepared, you can do it yourself. Nothing's stopping you. But a lot of people find them intimidating because the language used, the forms used, they're not, they're not user-friendly. So frequently people turn to professional services or uh, web services that, that automate a lot of the stuff. So that's why this is a huge issue here in the United States. And there's a lot more to this story, but I actually recommend heading over to The Verge and reading their article. It's titled, Tax Filing Websites Have Been Sending Users Financial Information to Facebook. Uh, go check out that article. It's very well done. It's exhaustive. It's a very long article and incredibly informative. So check that out. Okay, we've got a few more news items to cover before we conclude. But first, let's take one more break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. 
Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is uncanny usa he says somebody's in the house and i screamed listen to uncanny usa wherever you get your bbc podcasts if you dare get emotional with me radhi devlukia in my new podcast a really good cry We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here... We have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. We're back. Researchers at MISC... That's M-Y-S-K, are saying that Apple talks the talk but does not necessarily walk the walk when it comes to user activity and privacy on iOS devices. So Apple famously handed over more control to iOS users when it comes to how their data and behavior can be tracked by third-party apps. Uh, This was a huge blow to companies like Meta, for example, because users could choose to not share their behaviors and other private data 
with Meta, which meant that Meta could no longer use that data to sell targeted ads and have them target you, the user, more effectively. But Misk says that Apple's first-party apps don't have these same sort of restrictions, which may mean Apple is preventing other companies from being able to do what it itself can continue to do on iOS. Misk said that some first-party apps use what is called a Directory Services Identifier, or DSID, and that this identifier in turn is linked to a user's unique iCloud data and Apple ID. So while Apple might say our apps are not depending on data that can personally identify you, it sounds like it's at best one degree of separation away from doing just that. Moreover, MISC researchers are arguing that other details can converge to create a kind of digital fingerprint for a user, so that while you might be able to say that no single point of data points to a specific person, if you collectively take all the different points of data, you can start making very educated guesses as to who that user is. We've seen this in the past. It really takes just a few points of data to kind of narrow down a person's identity. And you don't need anything specific to, to really, you know, figure that out. You just need a few different general points. And that's enough for you to make a really good guess. Now, this does not necessarily mean that Apple is doing anything with that data, right? We don't know that. We don't know if Apple is actually taking advantage of this data collection and analyzing it in any meaningful way. Uh, the problem is Apple's really quiet when it comes to its data acquisition and analytics. And that means that we do have these unanswered questions. We don't know if Apple's actually doing anything with this data. It just seems like Apple could do something, that Apple has that capability because of these little points of connection. And the problem is we don't know enough, so that breeds suspicion. But um, yeah, this is what happens when you have a lack of transparency. The global games market report from NewZoo has good news and it has some bad news for the gaming industry. Now, the good news is that there are 4.6% more gamers there today than there were this time last year. Uh, places like Africa and the Middle East saw the largest gains in people becoming gamers. North America grew the least, but even in North America, we saw 2.6% more gamers this year compared to last year. Uh, that's impressive because you got to remember that there was a big, big boost in gaming during the pandemic as people were, you know, in lockdown and they couldn't leave their their homes. There was a big surge toward gaming in various ways. Uh, so to see growth continue, even as the world has largely emerged from lockdown, is impressive. Now, the bad news is that even though there are more gamers, they generated less revenue this year compared to last year. Uh, this is where we're reminded that gaming is a multi-billion dollar industry, because even though revenue dropped by 4.3% globally, still amounted to $184 billion. Now, about half of that came just from mobile games, and that's a spicy meatball. I know, like, quote-unquote, real gamers can often dismiss mobile games, but y'all, that makes up, like, half of all the revenue generated by gaming. If you look at consoles, that's, like, mm, a little more than a quarter, and then PC is a little less than that. And then it's everything else, right? So mobile gaming is by far the dominant form of gaming if you're looking at it from a global perspective. 
the decline in revenue was the first time the gaming industry saw a decline in 15 years. But as TechSpot points out, that's still not terrible considering how other industries have fared in the current era of economic uncertainty. I still wonder if in the future we will name this period as the Great Economic Uncertainty, sort of akin to the Great Depression. Speaking of games, about four years ago, Ubisoft made the decision to lean on the Epic Game Store when it came to digital distribution of its titles, and it spurned Valve's competing Steam Store. These are online stores where you can purchase games and then download them directly to your machine. Now, now Ubisoft is actually bringing some titles back to Steam. Uh, on December 6th, gamers will be able to purchase titles like Assassin's Creed Valhalla or Anno 1800 through Steam. So, why did Ubisoft ditch Steam in the first place? Well, it's very similar to how app developers are frustrated with Google and Apple, because Steam takes a 30% cut off sales that are made through its store. So the game company only gets 70% of each sale it makes. Ubisoft didn't really care for that, and so it made the move to pull out of Steam, but Steam also has an incredible reach. It is really popular with gamers. So while you will keep more of each individual sale, if you can get gamers to come to whichever digital storefront you use, there are potentially millions of gamers that you will never reach because they are more or less sticking to the Steam environment. So you could say like, well, yeah, on an individual level, we're making more per sale, but look at all these millions of sales we're not making because we aren't where the people are. So Ubisoft appears, they have decided to go where the people are. Maybe Ubisoft wants to see, wants to see them dancing, walking around on those, what do you call them? Finally, in a general trend of inclusivity, Axios reports that more big title games are untethering character creation tools from gendered terms. Players will have access to more options to create characters they feel they want to play. That can include players feeling that they are a closer match to the characters that they've created, which is nice. To be able to see representation of yourself in a game is incredible. So, we're seeing a trend for games to allow players to mix and match features that often would have been divided into a gendered approach in the past. And now players are more frequently discovering they are not being forced down binary pathways where choosing one gender will limit you to a subset of features and options and remove others. So one example of a game that's doing this is World of Warcraft, which is preparing to release an expansion called Dragonflight. Uh, WoW has ditched the terms male and female in character creation and instead opted for body type 1 and body type 2. Uh, other games, like The Sims, have done this, and surprisingly, so has Hogwarts Legacy. Uh, I say surprisingly for Hogwarts Legacy because Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling has made some infamous statements, mostly on Twitter, that are critical of the transgender community. But Hogwarts Legacy's character creation system appears to allow trans characters. Personally, I think increased inclusivity is great. It is a huge benefit to people who otherwise would never see representation within a game. And on the flip side, it doesn't have negative impacts on anyone else who already had representation in games. So I see it as a net win. Uh, I like how games can bring people together, 
though obviously games have also served as incubators for hateful behavior as well. It's complicated. Oh, feet. That's what you call them. That's the stuff that people are dancing on. I'm glad we got that sorted out. All right, that wraps up this episode of Tech Stuff News. Hope you are all well. Hope you fellow Americans out there are getting ready for a joyful Thanksgiving. Hope you have lots to be thankful for. And if you have any suggestions for topics I should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, there are a couple ways to get in touch. One is to download the iHeartRadio app. It's free to download, free to use. You can navigate over to Tech Stuff. Just put Tech Stuff in the little search bar. That will bring you over to the Tech Stuff podcast page. You'll see there a little microphone icon. If you click on that, you can leave a voice message up to 30 seconds in length. Uh, If you like, you can even indicate if I can use that voice message in a future episode of Tech Stuff. I will not do it unless you tell me it's okay. Or if you prefer, you can reach out on Twitter, assuming that it's up. And the handle there is techstuffhsw. Uh, I did create an account on Mastodon. I will share that in the future when uh, I probably do a full episode about Mastodon. So people who are on Mastodon can find me there. And I'm looking at a couple of other possibilities. The problem is, of course, that one, a lot of people are going to stick with Twitter until it just isn't a thing anymore, if that in fact happens. And two, if they choose something else, there are like a dozen other options. And I can't maintain a presence at all of them because I'll always forget one. And I'll never like checking like 14 different accounts for, <laughs> for messages is a huge time sink. So We'll figure it out. We'll keep on going. Maybe I'll reach out yet again to get an email address for the show. Uh, I know that Ben Bolin keeps sending people to my personal email address to issue complaints from uh, ridiculous history and stuff they don't want you to know, because that's fun. But anyway, uh, hope you're all well, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's brand new season two. 
I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A rested child is a happy child. Sleep Tight Stories is a weekly podcast that brings comfort and joy to families worldwide with calming bedtime stories. The stories are relevant to children and spark wonder without overstimulation, so they can fall asleep and stay asleep. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For a bedtime routine you'll miss when they're grown, sleep tight stories.